Welcome to Statewide Reports and Conversations from in and around Illinois. I'm Sean Crawford. Coming up this hour, it was a busy week in state government. Statewide officials, including Governor J.B. Pritzker, took their oaths of office. Also, some new lawmakers were sworn in. We'll introduce you to one. More school districts have adopted technology that monitors students when they're online. We'll have a report. A Ukrainian family has settled in central Illinois, fleeing war in their homeland. We'll find out how they're adjusting. An elected official plans to again push to make the site of Springfield's 1908 race riot a national monument. We'll also learn about a study that found benefits to reintroducing bison to the prairie. And a college student raises awareness about a murder that is now a decades-old cold case. Those stories and more this hour on Statewide. This is Statewide, I'm Sean Crawford. Coming up, schools using technology to monitor students online. We'll also hear about an unsolved murder involving a college student in the 1970s. A student today is calling attention to the crime. And efforts continue to make the site of a dark chapter in Springfield history a national monument. Those stories and more on the way. Bringing back bison to the prairie transforms the landscape in ways that may well make it more resilient against climate change and benefit other wildlife. Celia Yopis-Jepson reports on a rare three-decade study by scientists at Kansas State University. If you have an image in your mind of what the prairie looks like, it might be a kind of ocean of swaying grass. And that's exactly what I saw when John Blair, a biologist at Kansas State University, drove me down a dirt road in the Flint Hills near Manhattan. Well, it's what I saw to my right. To my left, the prairie looked totally different. The sheer variety of plants was striking. And if you look across the road, we have one side of the road that is not grazed and another side that is grazed. Grazed by bison. Giants that can weigh up to a ton and pack away 30 pounds of grass a day. They're a boon to biodiversity, making room for legions of wildflowers that they don't eat. Magnets for bees and butterflies. In the fall, for example, when the monarchs move through here, there'll be hundreds to thousands of them out here as they move south on their migration. Fences on the Kansa Prairie Biological Station control where the bison can go and where they can't, so that K-State scientists can study their effects. The number of plant species in grazed plots has doubled. John Blair, he directs this research station, continued my tour. We saw lots of buffalo-sized ponds, or, or puddles really. They're called bison wallows. Bison roll on the ground, and over time, they leave indentations that fill up when it rains. This supports other critters. You know, spring peepers, frogs, uh, uh, dragonfly nymphs, aquatic insects will live in these. So, okay, you get more plant species when bison are around. What's the big deal? Biology professor Zach Radizak is one of the study's authors, and he says climate change is the big deal. The projections are that we're probably going to have more intense droughts. It also looks like we might have more periods of very high rainfall in between those droughts. 
And it's difficult to predict what kind of organisms can cope with this new form of variation. Some plants are not going to fare well, but in richly diverse grasslands, like where K-State's bison live, maybe other species will expand to fill the gap and shore up the food chain. By having a broader portfolio, the chance that we have one of these winning species in the future gets higher. North America once supported tens of millions of bison. Settlers and their descendants nearly drove them extinct and replaced them with barbed wire and cattle. Cattle are related, but they act differently and may eat more of those wildflower plants that the bison ignore. So the K-State study found that putting cattle on prairie grass boosted plant diversity, but not half as much as bison did. Now, K-State scientists are not saying you should eat bison instead of beef, but this person is. Yes, at this moment in history, buy bison meat 100%. Joseph Gazing Wolf helps direct the Tallgrass Prairie Preserve, where 2,300 bison live. It's on the Osage Nation Reservation in Oklahoma. He says climate change is here, and it's too urgent not to act. At this point, it would be very important for us to incentivize the switch from the cattle industry to a native food source, right? Which in this case would be bison. Gazing Wolf is quick to add a caveat. We have to be careful in saying, just reintroduce bison and then everything will be fine, right? Um, Because then you'll have a bison industry that takes off and becomes incredibly environmentally destructive. If I overgraze with my bison, it doesn't matter that they're bison. It's still poor management. But compared to beef, bison meat remains a niche market, a tiny sliver of what Americans eat. So some groups like the Nature Conservancy, which owns the Tallgrass Prairie Preserve where Gazing Wolf works, are working with cattle ranchers to try to get smarter about grazing the prairie and hopefully boost the biodiversity benefits of their herds. I'm Celia Yopis-Jepson. That story made possible by the Kansas News Service. Illinois Governor J.B. Pritzker has signed a statewide assault weapons ban into law, making Illinois the ninth state with such a measure. It bans dozens of guns already considered assault weapons, plus guns that can be modified to become one. Several counties have already said they won't enforce the new law, but Pritzker says they will. The state police is responsible for enforcement, as are all law enforcement all across this state, and they will, in fact, do their job or they won't be in their job. Gun dealers can sell their existing stock to out-of-state people or businesses, and they can also sell the weapons to law enforcement or the military. Rifle magazines larger than 10 rounds and pistol magazines larger than 15 are now banned, as are rapid-fire devices known as switches. Before the pandemic, 43% of schools provided students with computers, like Chromebooks and tablets. Now that number is well over 80%, and more than ever, school districts use software to monitor students when they're online. Peter Medlin brings us the story. A student types the word suicide into a Google search on their school-supplied Chromebook. It triggers an alert on the school's cloud access security broker. That's a software system the school uses to watch for potentially harmful online student activity, either harmful to themselves or to a fellow student. From there, the system's machine learning tools try to paint a more clear picture of the situation. Is the student just writing an essay for social studies about mental health laws? But maybe they've also spent time on suicide prevention websites. 
Ben Bale is the director of technology at Cal Public Schools. They use a security company called Securely, and he says with their software, at this point in the process, the information is also reviewed by actual people who work for Securely to see if intervention is necessary. From there, we can then trigger email responses that go to specific people. So it would go to like building administration. From there, it can also go to like the security manager for the district, SROs who are also trained in being able to assist. And then from there, if it's a truly substantive threat, phone calls start to occur. Bale says that every week he receives about 100 securely alerts, and many of those are totally harmless. A student might be doing an assignment about gun control and do some firearm-related Google searches that trip an alarm. But, he says, in DeKalb, they get around three or four, quote, semi-substantive alerts every week. That means support gets immediately deployed to the student, like a meeting with a school social worker. This process, in some form or another, plays out every day in school districts across the country. According to one survey, 89% of teachers say their school monitors student activity on either school-issued or personal devices. They can see what students search for, who they chat with, even remotely watch their screen. Of the half-dozen Northern Illinois school districts that responded to WNIJ, all of them told us that they use monitoring companies like Securely, Gaggle, or GoGuardian. And school districts and security companies say the goal of online monitoring is student safety, to help identify and support students who might not reach out for help on their own, but whose online activity indicates they need assistance. Cody Vensky thinks that's a great goal, but isn't sure these programs fulfill it. He's a senior counsel for the Center for Democracy and Technology's Equity and Civic Technology Project. And a few months ago, he helped pen a report for CDT called Hidden Harms, the misleading promise of monitoring students online. It has a disproportionate impact on groups of kids. We found that it's increasing contact with law enforcement, it's outing LGBTQ plus kids, and generally chilling what kids do online. Again, nearly 90% of teachers say their school uses this software, but where and when it's used can be surprising. For one, most monitoring is on school-issued devices, but 18% said their schools monitor students' own devices. If they're on the school's Wi-Fi or log into a web browser with their school credentials, the monitoring often continues. That means students are also monitored outside of the hours of the school day. It happens at night or if they keep their device on school breaks. In their surveys, a vast majority of parents and almost half of students say they're comfortable with device surveillance during the school day. Once it's following students home and being used to measure their mental health or their personal well-being, that cuts into a space of, of privacy that students and parents aren't comfortable with. When 24-7 alerts are first sent to third-party companies, IT professionals, and sometimes police before teachers or parents, it also surprises parents. In DeKalb, Security Director Ben Bale says its securely system doesn't alert parents directly, but they promote a parent portal where parents can review their kids' web history, look at alerts, and block websites. Another concern the Center for Democracy and Technology study expressed is that monitoring can disproportionately impact marginalized students. First off, wealthy students are more likely to have their own devices, whereas low-income families might rely on school-issued devices. And even though discipline isn't the intended purpose of this software, it is a result. 70% of teachers said that monitoring is used to see if a student has violated a disciplinary policy. And in the CDT study, Black and Hispanic students were more likely to get in trouble as a result of online activity monitoring. 
LGBTQ plus language has also been found to be more often flagged by algorithms. And Zensky says he's worried that as schools use this software to get students to resources, those students won't actually seek support online if they know they're monitored. The internet allows us to connect to a lot of really great, important information, and kids are less likely to access it if they know that they're being surveilled. A staggering statistic in the Center for Democracy and Technology's report shows that 29% of LGBTQ plus students say they or someone they know have been outed due to online activity software. But despite concerns and gray areas, Ben Bale and DeKalb says the positives of proactively helping students before something bad might happen outweighs the negatives. I'd much rather be able to say that we're doing everything we can in order to support our students, um, even when they don't know maybe necessarily that they need the support. There are some, even on Capitol Hill, who also have concerns about student monitoring. In 2022, United States Senators Ed Markey and Elizabeth Warren released the findings from an investigation they opened into the top monitoring companies. The senator's report recommends these monitoring companies use demographic data to examine the impact of their algorithms on protected classes of students and for local education agencies to track the effects of these tools on marginalized students. I'm Peter Mudlin. Would-be guardians of the English language have spoken, and they've banished another list of words and phrases for misuse, overuse, and general uselessness. Herb Tricks tells us more. Starting in 1976, staff members at Lake Superior State University in Michigan's Upper Peninsula have collected nominations from people who are fed up with what they consider abuse of the language. And a lot of people are fed up. Spokesman Peter Zatmary says they received more than 1,500 nominations for the latest list. And they came from the U.S. and around the world, and not just from where you'd expect, say England and Australia, but also Belgium, Trinidad and Tobago, China, and Namibia. Namibia? And number one on the list is the acronym GOAT, which stands for Greatest of All Time. As one of our nominators put it, it's GOAT is applied to everyone and everything from athletes to chicken wings. And if you think about it, how can anyone or anything be the, the greatest of all time anyway? Because time marches on, records fall. And another of our nominators, several of our nominators, were irked by how liberally this was sprinkled around like table salt on just about anyone who's really good. Next on the banned list is what used to be a mathematical term, inflection point. And one of our nominators pointed out it's chronic throat clearing from talking heads, historians, journalists, scientists, etc., and that nominator said, its ubiquity has driven me to an inflection point of throwing soft objects about whenever the nominator hears it. And another of our entry entrants said, well, it's a pretentious way of saying turning point. And when it comes to irritating, how about it is what it is? Our nominator reasons were everything from, well, duh, to, of course it is what it is. What else would it be? It would be weird if it wasn't what it wasn't. And it's an excuse not to deal with or accept uh, responsibility or reality. And in, in some instances, it's sort of dismissive and borderline rude. Zatmary says each year the banished list reflects current events, whether it's political campaigns, wars, or the economy, 
And the entries often come from the talking heads on the all-news channels. Other entries on the new list include Moving Forward, Where Else Would We Go, Absolutely, Instead of Just Saying Yes, and Amazing. But amazing, because when you think about it, not everything is amazing. Very few things are. And our nominators said things like it's a worn-out adjective for people short on vocabulary. This is actually the second time for Amazing. It was first banished back in 2012. Sat Mary calls all of this a serious joke. We all would like to communicate clearly. Sometimes we do, hopefully more times than not. But sometimes at least I fall victim to miscommunication. And this, this banished list is our serious joke attempt to get people to pay as close attention as they can to how they communicate and miscommunicate. To make a nomination for next year's banished list, go to lssu.edu slash banished words. You can also find lists of all the words and phrases dating back to 1976 by year or alphabetically. I'm Herb Tricks. Just ahead, we'll introduce you to a Ukrainian family who have immigrated to central Illinois, fleeing their home country during the war. That's on the way next on Statewide. Welcome back to Statewide. I'm Sean Crawford. A Ukrainian family who fled their homeland after the Russian invasion has moved 11 times in the past year. Eric Stock reports Bloomington quickly became their permanent home. Jana Shipula has lived nearly her entire life in Ukraine's southern port city of Kherson. She lived there with her husband and their two-year-old son. Their hometown has become a key battleground since Russia illegally annexed part of eastern Ukraine months into the war. Shipula never imagined the war would last months. When Russian troops invaded her son in February, the family packed one suitcase, took her mother and grandmother with them, and drove to western Ukraine to wait out the conflict. They soon realized one week would not be enough. In a few days, we realized that it's more and more parts of our city and region occupied, and that time we realized that we don't have, to, we don't have place to return, and that it was a very horrible time. The Shipulas scoured the Internet to find another place to go. They were now refugees of war. First, they drove to Spain to stay with Jana's aunt. An hour before they got there, the aunt informed them there was no more room. Other refugees got there first. Jana used her connections as a blogger and online Russian language teacher to put out calls for help. One subscriber offered her family five days in Hungary. That bought the family time to get their car fixed. By then, it was early March. Jana walked the streets of Budapest, and for the first time in weeks, she saw people smiling. That's when the grim reality of their homeland started to sink in. I was not jealous to them. It was like uh, I realized that their life is going on, but for some other people, not for our family, not for Ukrainians. 
from Hungary, the Schipulas hopscotched from Spain to Italy to stay with one of Gianna Sipula's students. Schipula says by then her grandmother was having health problems that made it hard to walk. Schipula says living in cold churches and wet basements likely made her grandmother's sciatic nerve worse. With no plan in Milan, a friend who fled Ukraine connected the Schipulas with the Red Cross to help with housing and food. The Red Cross put up Ukrainian refugees in Spain in a hotel that had been closed two years for COVID. The Shipulas met another refugee family there who told them the United States was accepting Ukrainian refugees. Her husband, Andrew, was ready. Jana wasn't, but Andrew convinced her to go. It's a safer than in, in Europe because uh, who knows, maybe the nuclear war can happen and it will influence to Europe more than to the United States. The Shipulas flew to Mexico and entered the U.S. through San Diego, where they stayed for a week as they searched for a more permanent home. Shipula says it was hard to find housing for a family of five, including a two-year-old, especially in California, where housing is expensive. Shipula reached out to Samaritan's Purse, a faith-based international relief organization. After a series of interviews, Samaritan's Purse offered three locations to stay in the U.S. She'd never heard of any of them. One was Bloomington Normal. Shipula says it seemed the right size community for them. Safety was the most important part at uh, the time because even in San Diego, I was not feeling safe. I said to my husband, there is a military base here. Bloomington Normal was an option because Eastview Christian Church at Normal worked with Samaritan's Purse on accepting Ukrainian refugees, even if that wasn't the plan at first. Mark Dossett is community center pastor at Eastview. Dossett says the church explored the refugee program when the United States pulled out of Afghanistan in the summer of last year, and the U.S. prepared for a flood of Afghanis into the country. By the time Eastview was ready to sponsor a refugee family, Ukraine had become a humanitarian crisis. As Dossett explains, a Samaritan's Purse uses donations and federal funding to provide emergency housing and other help to families like the Sipulas, who are on humanitarian humanitarian parole. Making sure that they have cash for the things they need, but also going through the processes to get linked up with, you know, public aid or uh, food pantries or clothing pantries, anything that can help them to kind of minimize the cash outlay that they would have to do otherwise. People granted humanitarian parole have one year to live in the U.S. Dossett says Samaritan's Purse then helps the refugees get paperwork so they can get jobs, seek asylum status, and eventually apply for a green card and U.S. citizenship. The Immigration Project is another organization that helped the Shipulas settle in Bloomington. Social Services Director Sarah Meller says the Immigration Project has helped with their legal needs and other life needs, such as obtaining a driver's license, getting furniture, and learning how to use the Connect Transit public bus system. Meller says it can be overwhelming for refugee families who often don't know where to start. The stress is actually like one of the main issues that people are facing because there's so much on their their to-do list and so much that they need to do to start their lives back over. Aside from being a Russian language teacher, Jana Shipula also worked in hotel management in Ukraine. She'd like to find work like that in Bloomington. Her husband is a businessman with an IT degree. Shipula says they didn't want to stay in Spain. They didn't know the language and feared it would limit job prospects. They both speak English and want to find work in the U.S., but are still waiting on work authorization. Sarah Meller with the Immigration Project says immigration paperwork is backlogged and often takes months to process. Since that time, their 90-day sponsorship ended. 
It also ended for Jana Shipula's in-laws, who joined the family in Bloomington. It's been seven people living under one roof since the summer. Mark Dawson at Eastview Christian Church says the church will continue to financially support the family while their immigration status remains in limbo. We're committed to it for the long run, and so really as long as that work authorization isn't on the horizon or isn't in place, then Eastview's going to be there to make sure. Jana Shipula says the family plans to stay in Bloomington and figure things out. Aside from all the uncertainty about the future, Shipula says she and her family are happy here, and their son, who's now almost three, really likes it here. The city is very family-orientated. We found that here there are a lot of playgrounds. I uh, We spent here, as you said, a few months already, but we haven't visited all of these playgrounds still. The family was looking forward to a trip to Raider Family Farms. They are regulars at Children's Discovery Museum in Normal. The Immigration Project says there's one other family of Ukraine war refugees living in McLean County. It's not clear whether future refugees might find as much help in Bloomington Normal. Mark Dawson with Eastview Christian says Samaritan's Purse no longer assists new refugees, so the program for now is essentially over. Demand for emergency housing may not be over. Thousands of migrants have been bused to Illinois from southern states, and Bloomington Normal leaders have explored ways to help if some end up here. Dawson says the Shipulas made their transition fairly smooth. He was impressed by how well they've handled all the uncertainty. But he says sponsoring even one family is intense and can be filled with trauma. Dawson says it's not clear how much Eastview might help if more immigrants sought refuge in Bloomington Normal. There's always going to be places in the world where there's war or um, um, some kind of situation, catastrophic hits, and, and, and there's these, these displaced peoples. So what we're, the way we're looking at it is, is, is a learning experience for us to kind of understand a lot of those nuances that we have come to learn. The Shipulas have learned a lot about the United States in their seven months in Bloomington Normal, enough to know they want to make this their permanent home. The Shipulas are taking English as a second language classes at Heartland Community College. Jana Shipula says she's pleased to see all the Ukraine flags Americans are flying to show support for the former Soviet nation as it resists Russian aggressors. Shipula says she fears her native Ukraine won't be safe even if Russian troops leave. I miss it almost every day, but uh, we have a baby and I, I want him to grow up in safe surrounding. I don't want him to have this experience of war again because it's terrible. Eric Stock with that report. Jana Shipula also says going back to Ukraine would be a reminder of all the people they knew who the Russians have killed. The NAACP was founded in 1909, a year following the massive Springfield race riot, during which dozens of black-owned businesses and homes were destroyed. Six people died, including two black men who were lynched, and many others were hurt. Senator Tammy Duckworth says she will reintroduce legislation to make the site of the Springfield race riot a national monument. Our reporter Maureen McKinney interviewed Duckworth to learn more about her plans. You and other lawmakers have worked to get the Springfield race riot site designated as a national monument. What's the status of that process? Well, I introduced the legislation last Congress, um, and I'm going to reintroduce it this Congress. There's two things that can happen. Uh, One is we can make this happen through congressional action, or two, the Secretary of the Interior could just 
designate it and, and move it along. And um, that's a little bit of a longer process because they have to go through all of their review and surveys and all of that. So one way or the other, we're going to get this done. Listen, this the 1908 Springfield Race Riot Act is of extraordinary cultural and historical importance to our nation. It's not just to Illinois, but to the nation. You know, because of this race riot, um, we the NWACP was founded. I think it's critically important that we get this done. So I am making this one of my top priorities. I'm going to reintroduce it this Congress. I saw you've been trying other avenues, um, like writing a column, for instance, to uh, local newspapers. Mm-hmm. And is that uh, the end of it or is there more that can be done or can be done by your constituents well if, if the constituency wants to write letters to the white house um and and send in a petition that would be fantastic i will tell you that i have done more than you know introducing the legislation more than writing the columns i've actually talked to the secretary of health and security pressuring her to please um, expedite the process of approval for this. It's so important that we designate this area a national monument. Uh, it's going to make sure that the painful lessons we learned at this site will not be lost for generations of Americans to come. Um, and frankly, uh, our national parks don't truly reflect the history of this people. There are not that many sites that, that are uh, commemorating advances or areas of historic importance for African-American history in particular. And this is critically important. This, um, the, the Springfield race riot, but also, you know, I'm doing the legislation for the Emmett Till and Mamie Till Mobley uh, Roberts Temple National Historic Site Act as well. So I'm doing two things here uh, in terms of the Springfield race riot act. It's critically important that we, that we get a move on. And it's not a very big project. It's less than an acre. <laughs> and yet it is so monumentally important to our nation's history to have this, this site be recognized um, because this, in co- along with the Emmett Till, uh, Roberts Temple site, are critically important points in time in our nation's civil rights struggle. About the uh, Till site, do you have the same wish for it as the um, race riot monument, or is this a different idea of what might take place it's the same idea in terms of designating it a, a national historic site, uh, a national monument. But the difference here is the Emmett Till site is a building that is falling into disrepair, right? At the Springfield race riot site, this is uh, an archaeological dig where they're finding the artifacts where the homes were burned and, and they're recovering, they're recovering the, the artifacts. There's no building there um, to be rebuilt. Uh, in the case of the Roberts Temple National Historic Site, you have a building that is in significant decline, and that is why it is so incredibly urgent that we get this designated a National Historic Site so that we can make the investments into preserving building itself so that, so that we don't lose it to um, the decline of the building itself. And it is one of my top priorities, and I'm going to make sure we get this passed or the two sites designated in as soon as possible. That's Senator Tammy Duckworth talking with Maureen McKinney about an effort to make a national monument at the site of the 1908 Springfield race riot and to designate as a national site the Chicago church where Emmett Till's funeral was held. 
Volunteers in a northern Illinois city use Martin Luther King Jr.'s celebrations to foster community through the youth that expands beyond the holiday. Yvonne Boos has more. Three King events are taking place in Elgin, Illinois this weekend. A prayer breakfast, a documentary screening, and a food drive. The city has a Martin Luther King Jr. Celebration Committee, which is led by volunteers. Joe Wars is the chairman of the Martin Luther King Jr. Food Drive this year. Wars moved to Elgin in 1976. He says the city has celebrated MLK for over 30 years. It became a federal holiday in 1986. Wars says the events have evolved over the decades. We had a gospel class. We had youth competition as far as our art. We've had uh, just a basic youth program. And all of these things were started simply because we felt the need to uh, get the youth involved. Wars explains that after a while, the youth celebrations dwindled down because technology sped up. He says children were learning about King at school and weren't interested in learning about such things on their time off. Denise Haben is the co-chair of the Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Celebration Committee. She says it's important for young people to connect the present with the past. One of the really great things that has kind of stuck around as we do our Dr. King celebrations is the fact that we offer scholarships to area youth. And this year, I'm just, you know, I think we're just like astounded. We're going to give out 12 scholarships. The scholarships range from $500 to $1,000. Wars and Haven says the Martin Luther King Jr. celebrations ignited an ongoing desire to lead for some of the city's youth. Out of nowhere, Denise started getting phone calls. I got phone calls. Janice got phone calls saying, hey, can I help with this? Can I work on this? Janice Hare is also a co-chair of the committee. She says partners like the YWCA and Boys and Girls Club of Elgin have given community youth skills that allow them to play key roles in the Martin Luther King Jr. celebrations. These young people are inspiring. They are young leaders, and we'd love to always have them to do something productive to where they can put in their portfolio and go on in their lives and their careers and build themselves. Hare has a personal testimony of what these celebrations could set into motion. She says her son was going down the wrong path. And people like Joe uh, in the community uh, helped shape him to continue to grow and fester. And although he, you know, didn't do the high school, uh, graduated out of high school at the right time, but he did, went on and got his GED. The 39-year-old now owns his own barbershop in the community. War says it's important to introduce Martin Luther King Jr.'s legacy to young people because they don't have the same experience as their elders. Just like yesterday, that you know, I can remember, you know, marching and having dogs turn on us and the water hoses and, and the whole nine yards. But you take a 12 year old kid now, and for them, something happened in 1957. Man, that sounds like way, 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 way back. The celebrations begin at 8:30 a.m. January 14th at Elgin Community College. The city will host the 38th annual Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Prayer Breakfast the Illinois premiere of the documentary Invented Before You Were Born will screen from 4 p.m. until 6 p.m. January 15th at Larkin High School. I'm Yvonne Booz. We've got more to come on Statewide. Stay with us. This is Statewide. I'm Sean Crawford. Coming up, a college student raises awareness about a decades-old cold case. But next, 
At 23 years old, Democrat Nabila Syed is now one of the youngest members ever of the Illinois General Assembly. She was elected to serve in the Illinois House for the next two years. Syed and others were sworn in this week. Mawa Iqbal has more on how the future state lawmaker is preparing for the job. Syed first wanted to get into politics back in high school, 2016 in particular, when Donald Trump was elected president. He had spent months campaigning on banning immigration from African nations and Muslim-majority countries. Seeing how Trump was growing in popularity and the kind of support he was getting. And uh, that was like a moment where I was like, man, is this like, is politics meant for people like me? Is this country meant for people like me? People like her who are proud to wear a hijab. She'll be joining future member of the House Abdel Nasser Rashid as the first Muslims to serve in Springfield. Sayed wants to create a space in politics for people of her and many other identities. And she figured, what better place to do it than in state government? I felt like the issues I care about are happening at the state level. What I could impact change on is happening at the state level. Sayed was born and raised in North Suburban Palatine, which is part of the newly drawn 51st Legislative District. She had just finished campaign work for a few local school board races when her friend Anusha told her to run for incumbent Chris Boss's seat. Sayed says he wasn't doing a good job of representing her community and didn't like how he dodged questions on topics like reproductive rights. Boss, who is registered Republican, is labeled, quote, fully pro-life by anti-abortion group Illinois Right to Life. We didn't have good representation. We didn't have someone at the table who, who was working hard enough for our community. While out on the trail, Syed campaigned on protecting reproductive rights and received endorsements from several pro-abortion groups, like Planned Parenthood of Illinois. She also raised over $480,000, nearly nine times more than what her opponent raised. But it was being out in the community, knocking on doors, where she says she really felt an impact. There was a common concern she kept hearing from people about not feeling heard, especially older residents. Sayed grew up living with her grandmother, so caring for the elderly became a big part of her life from an early age. There are people that are older in our communities that have contributed so much but are lacking support, whether it's the property taxes, whether it's prescription costs. That direct contact is just the thing that, above all else, she believes cemented her win. Some people came out of the polling station and said, I was the only Democrat that they voted for. And to me, that was such a surreal moment because I'm thinking... I'm a 23-year-old, I wear a hijab, I'm visibly Muslim, I'm Indian, and somehow the one Democrat that they decided to vote for was me. And now with her first term ahead of her, she's channeling that support in her upcoming work. She's hoping to help her colleagues promote organ and tissue donations and push gun reform measures. She says she's already received an outpouring of support from fellow Asian American lawmakers, namely Senator Ram Villavalam and Representative Teresa Ma. But, she says, she's got some homework to do first, like literally learning more about how a bill becomes a law. And as a freshman lawmaker, Syed says she plans to give it her all. But at the same time, she's trying to manage expectations, both for herself and for the people she serves. You know, whatever we get done will be probably the most that I can get done, but I'll be, I'll think I'll, I'll be able to say that I did my best and um, worked hard on behalf of my community. For now, she is continuing to meet with her constituents and local elected officials on how to best represent them in Springfield. Plus, she's working on setting up a district office that, she says, will have the best constituent services in the state. I'm Mawa Iqbal.
Governor J.B. Pritzker took the oath of office for a second time this week. Eric Stock reports the governor ticked off a list of accomplishments and outlined what his office plans to do in the next four years. And I will faithfully discharge the duties. Of the office of governor. Of the office of governor. According to the best of my ability. According to the best of my ability. Congratulations, Governor. Thank you very much. After Pritzker's second swearing-in at the Bank of Springfield Convention Center, he summed up his first term in office as change promised and change delivered. So four years ago, with hope in our hearts and persistence in our souls, we went to work, and we got big things done. We balanced the budget and got credit upgrades. We raised the minimum wage. Got big things Pritzker mentioned included a $45 billion capital bill the legislature approved during his first year in office. Lawmakers doubled Illinois' gas tax to pay for it. Pritzker says that modernized the state transportation system. He noted Illinois legalized recreation of marijuana during its first term. The governor also outlined clean energy, nursing home, and pension reforms during a nearly half-hour speech. Pritzker said he learned there is no playbook for any governor to follow and took a jab at his predecessors. I've taken to learning from the words and actions of past governors, regardless of their political affiliations or leanings. Though let's be honest, in Illinois, choosing which ones to learn from can be a challenge. Illinois, after all, was known for a long list of governors who have gone to prison. Pritzker drew a parallel with Dwight Green, who was the governor at the start of World War II. He said both administrations had to cope with grief and loss and noted Illinoisans have lost nearly twice as many people to COVID as it did to the Second World War. The difficult thing about governing through unprecedented times is that it's your job to set the precedent, to find a path, even when none appears to exist, to lift up the frontline heroes, the essential workers on whom we all rely, to make the hard decisions to protect those doing the very hard work of keeping us all together. Pritzker then turned to the second term. I come to you with an agenda as ambitious and bold as our people are, thinking not only about the next four years, but about the next 40. The governor calls for universal preschool access for young kids and making tuition free for working class families. He also wants to expand health care coverage and offer more permanent tax relief. Pritzker also asks lawmakers to pass an assault weapons ban. Dangerous weapons are putting families and law enforcement at risk. Now, I'm a firm believer that government functions best when we look for compromise. But I'm done with the NRA having its way when it comes to mass shootings. Pritzker was also focusing on social issues that go beyond state lines, starting with abortion rights. The extremists still want to take away a woman's right to choose, and I don't intend to let them. That's why, yet again, on women's rights, Illinois will lead. And Pritzker points to what he calls an alarming increase in hate crimes. And I've realized that for my entire lifetime, progress has been made against bigotry and intolerance. But not anymore. None of us should ignore that our nation has slid noticeably backward, and dangerously so. To some ears, Pritzker's speech sounded like it came from a candidate for national office. He says the battles for freedom and democracy that Americans fought for abroad during World War II are now being fought at home. Pritzker has said he doesn't plan to run for president as long as Joe Biden plans to seek a re-election. He also has not promised to finish his second term if Biden doesn't run again. I'm Eric Stock. For better or worse, social media has accelerated the popularity of true crime content. 
be it documentaries, podcasts, YouTubers, what have you. An Illinois State University senior is trying to harness that energy in a positive way. Nicole Roach started a Facebook group to revive interest in the cold case of then-Illinois State University student Carol Rofstad, whose death around Christmas 1975 has remained unsolved for nearly 50 years. She spoke with Lindsay Jones. I had come across Carol's uh, case on the Illinois State Police page. They have like a whole page about unsolved homicides. And I saw this and I was like, I've never heard about this before. Like, having, I have a lot of friends who went to ISU. You know, I have a lot of um, like my parents' friends who went to ISU. And I was like, how can I, how did I not know about this? So basically, I came across her case. And to me, it seemed like there, is a lot more that could have been done, and there's a lot more that can be done. What in particular led you to think that? She was last seen walking from a local bar, The Cellar, which is now The Garlic Press, um, over on North Street on the night of December 22nd, 1975. At this point, most ISU students were already gone for Christmas break, but she had decided to stay a while longer to pick up some extra shifts at her retail job. After she left the bar, she started her less than 10-minute walk to the Delta Zeta sorority house, which was at 602 South Fell Street. And around noon the next day, on the 23rd, a passerby had found Carol unconscious and badly beaten near the side of the sorority house. And the murder weapon, an 18-inch piece of railroad tie covered in blood, was found next to her. Um, signs of hypothermia indicated that she had been out there all night. Mm. Um, she was rushed to the hospital to undergo emergency brain surgery, but she sadly passed away on Christmas Eve. Um, it doesn't seem like theft was uh, a reason, as she had all her belongings and all her money was still found in her purse. And there were actually two sorority sisters in the house that night, and they, they didn't hear, hear a peep. They didn't hear anything. So it came to me at some point this summer, and I was thinking, you know, could I ask normal police for the case files? A couple months ago, they ended up sending me hundreds of files on Carol's case. And looking through all of that, I had noticed that a lot of, there were a lot of loose ends, you know, mm -hmm. a lot of uh, investigations that didn't really lead anywhere, um, a lot of you know, suspects that were just given a polygraph, and if they passed it, they were just let off. Um, oh, and man. so when I was looking at this, I thought, well, there's gotta be some, there's gotta be some way that this can be solved. And I believe that in the early 2000s, mm -hmm. normal police had sent in evidence. Um, I'm not sure quite what evidence. They had sent it to the FBI for analysis for finger, fingerprints or DNA. But the results of those have never been released publicly, and they're not in the case files. But I think that it would be a really, really good idea for normal police to retest those. Even though it's been two decades since they did that, like the technology for extraction, degraded DNA, all this stuff has just completely blossomed within even the past five years. And the technology yeah. is so much better than it used to be. And I think that even the FBI didn't have that technology back then. Is this also where the social media aspect comes into play? Because I know that you had started the Facebook group um, to revive interest in Carol Rofstad's case. I think that with a lot of these cold cases, just 
it just takes one person or a group of people to get that public attention and that's really what snowballs it and that's what can lead to you know the resolution i think that with you know fresh eyes on the case new investigators new technology new ways of investigating things it can 100 percent be solved um, and that's really a large reason why i'm trying to you know get on media and try to you know uh, go on facebook talk to as many people as I can on campus because I really think that a lot of people would want this case to be solved and would like to push the police more to get this case solved, but they're just unaware of it. And when I do tell people about it, they are so surprised. They're like, how can I not know about this? There's been some valid critiques of true crime enthusiasts who have, you know, taken things too far or they've been almost voyeuristic with what they do or they hurt things more than they help them. How do you draw that line for yourself and make sure that what you're doing is not playing into any negative cycles that social media can play into? With social media, it has been such a great tool to bring awareness about cases, cases that have been totally, you know, thrown on the back burner for so long. And, you know, that's that's why that that's why I decided to utilize social media a lot to uh, garner awareness with Carol's case, because Mm -hmm. um, a lot of people online weren't aware of it and there weren't a lot of um, online, you know, discussions about it. When I created this Facebook page, I realized that there were a lot of older people who joined it who did go to the university during the time, yeah. and they didn't even have an, any idea that she was killed. I really wanted to kind of get the story together, get all the information that wasn't put online, and kind of give it to people in its entirety and say, you know, these are the facts, and what can we do to help? That's Illinois State University senior Nicole Roach. She spoke with WGLT's Lindsay Jones. Roach started the Facebook group Who Killed Carol Rofsted. She says Rofsted's surviving family members told her they support her efforts to bring new attention to the long unsolved case. That's all the time we have for this episode of Statewide. Be sure to join us again next week. We'll be back with more reports and conversations from in and around Illinois. You can find all of our episodes there at the website nprillinois.org. Just look for Statewide. And our weekly podcast is available through the NPR One app. I'm Sean Crawford, and Statewide is a production of NPR Illinois, with help from other Illinois Public Radio stations.